0: Good morning, church. This series of message starting today is entitled Eight Days to Change the World. And today we'll be looking at the person and work of King Jesus Christ. For our start of our service, I'd like to lead us in a congregational prayer first and then read God's holy word. And this is Sunday, March 29th. And our world is in the grip of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. And so let's bow as we pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, our mighty God, you're so caring and compassionate. Your loving involvement in the affairs of your creation are more than we can grasp. Thank you for your uh, being there for us, for your presence in great adversity. Father, we come to you and confess our sins. We ask that you'd have mercy and forgive us of our sins as a nation, as a church, and as individuals. Sin and unrighteousness in its many forms. Forgive us, we pray, for our national sin of abortion and the sexual distortion of your design, so prevalent in our culture. And we do pray for the personal sins of indifference and disobedience and inattentiveness to your precepts. We want to thank you that you are a saving God, a forgiving God, and that you've done this in Christ Jesus. You sin paid for on the cross. Thank you for so great a salvation. And thank you that you are a very real help in time of trouble and need. Father, your people, we are in great need as a nation, a church, and your people. We ask you to help our nation turn to you in this time of pestilence and sickness. Use this to strengthen your church to be the church, cause people to turn to you in their distress and that they will seek you while there's time to be saved. We pray for your protection of our church members and their families. We pray for our national, state, and local leaders to act wisely in the interest of life and health for all involved. Now we ask, as the psalmist asked in Psalm 119, verse 18, saying, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To open our service, we'll be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And as is our habit, if you're listening as a family, we'd ask you to please stand as we read God's holy word. John 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, So that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. There was the true light. Which coming into the world. Enlightens every man. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own. Did not receive him. But. As many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and And truth. Please be seated and may God add His blessing to the reading of His holy Word. We ask the question Who is this Holy One that the Scripture tells us? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Logos of God. This visible manifestation of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He's Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Today, as we start our Easter series entitled, Eight Days to Change the World, we'll be looking at the person and work of King Jesus Christ. In Hebrew, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the most significant man, in all the world and the events of his life that change the world forever. And to outline this message, we're going to do it in two parts. The first part being the eternal king, his infinite nature and existence. And in part two, we'll look at the earthly king, his redemptive mission and per- purpose. This mission or this series will examine this king, this Jesus, who is the most significant man in the world history and the events leading up to uh, eight days that change the world, from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. We'll be looking at that in detail next Sunday. But in part one, we want to look at the Eternal King, his infinite nature and existence. From our passage in John 1, we see the Gospel writer John describe Jesus as the Word. In Greek, it's the word logos. This logos is defined as... The essential word of God, Jesus Christ, the personal wisdom and power in union with God the Father, his minister in creation and government of the universe, the cause of all the world's uh, both life both in physical and ethical considerations, which for the procurement of man's salvation he put on human flesh in the person of Jesus the Messiah. He's the second person of the Godhead, and he shone forth conspicuously from his words and deeds. My goodness, all that from one powerful descriptive word, Logos. We see this in uh, the passage in John 1, uh, speaking of his eternal nature in verses 1 and 2, and his creation of the world in verses 3 and 10. In both the Old and the New Testament, Jesus is God and is eternal. In Genesis 1.26, we read, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, this is probably the earliest evidence for the Trinity in the Scripture. In Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 9, 6, uh, passage that we're very familiar with at Christmas time, we, we often say it's a great passage. It says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Similarly, in Micah 5, 2, another Christmas verse that we read, it speaks about, But thou, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Jesus said in John eight fifty eight, Before Abraham was born, I am. Paul writes in Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus as the eternal creator God and sovereign king. There is so much more we can uh, say about Jesus being this eternal creator and sovereign king, but I want to focus on our second portion of the, of the passage today, or the message today, looking at the earthly king, Jesus' redemptive mission and purpose. Now, Jesus is the central figure of both the Old and New Testament, together in the triune Godhead with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Spirit revealed to us in Scripture, much, but not all, about King Jesus is revealed to us in the gospel accounts. This is impossible because of the nature of who we're talking about, Jesus Christ. The impossible nature of completely revealing the person and work of Jesus Christ is best summed up by the gospel writer John. He writes in John 21 25 saying, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were Written in detail, I suppose that even the world would not contain the books that would be written. However, the Gospel accounts are sufficient and do give us the best historical, biographical portrayal of the earthly King Jesus. I'd like to stop a moment to consider the Gospel accounts and how they help us to understand King Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment a large circle that contains all the events Uh, And actions in the life of Jesus. Now consider the four gospel writers attempting to describe his life and ministry. As John said, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So the gospel writers had to limit themselves to describe Jesus, they had to be very selective in what they chose to write about. Fortunately, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they did this by writing to a selected audience of readers or hearers. They then selected a thematic portrayal or perspective of Jesus that would appeal and directly speak to that audience. The gospel writers would select events in his life that would support that theme of his life and illustrate him accurately. Now that is why we see in one Gospel writer may uh, be the only one to write about an isolated event in Jesus' life. While there are other events that all four Gospel writers address, this is done to support their overarching themes. Often the question comes up, why are there four Gospels? That's a great question, isn't it? In these four Gospels, we see God in his love for mankind wanting to reveal himself to the world And these four portrayals does just that. Let's just take a moment to consider this. In the Gospel of Matthew, written by Matthew Levi, a Jewish tax collector and disciple of Jesus, had as the target audience the Jews, the very first believers of Jesus, as well as the unbelieving Jews. As a result, Matthew, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, described Jesus thematically as... Jesus the Messiah, the King of the Jews. In his gospel, Matthew would show that Jesus was the Messianic Davidic King, promised in the Old Testament. We see Matthew presenting a genealogy. Certainly a royal king would need a lineage. Matthew writes in a way not to offend the Jews with indiscriminate use of the word God. That's why he refers to the kingdom of heaven, um, instead of the kingdom of God, it's the same term, it's just expressed differently. Matthew explained more about the kingdom program than any of the gospel writers, and also why the anticipated kingdom with the ensuing peace and victory over their enemies had not come about. Matthew points out because of the Jews' unbelief and their attributing the work of Jesus to the work of the devil. And their refusal to abandon Pharisaic-Rabbinic tradition, the kingdom would not be established in those days. Although, Jesus was still the Messianic King. Because of their rejection of the Messiah, Matthew speaks more of the impending 70 AD judgment of Jerusalem and the Roman destruction of their beloved temple than the other gospel writers. Now, understanding the Jewish mindset and traditions help to explain difficult passages and encounters Jesus had with the religious rulers of the Jewish people and helps us interpret this gospel in its Jewish context. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, a young protege of the Apostle Peter. This is the earliest of the Gospels written, and as we finished First Peter last week, we learned Mark relied closely on his close relationship with Peter and wrote much from Peter's perspective. Mark's target audience were the Romans, and their interest and motivation was action, more than teaching or philosophy. Just as some people enjoy an action movie rather than one with intricate dialogue, so too the Romans preferred action. Mark's theme was Jesus the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah, Mark writes about the actions in Jesus' life. There is rapidity of action, a sense of urgency, the immediate obedient actions of the commissioned servant on a mission. Over 40 times, Mark uses the Greek word euthios or euthos that translates as immediately, straightaway, or forthwith. Mark's portrayal of Jesus does not neglect his own Jewish roots, and he's quoting often... Um, from the book of Isaiah and Isaiah's depiction of Messiah as the obedient, suffering servant of Jehovah. This obedient servant on this mission to save mankind was obedient to death, suffering death on the cross. The Gospel of Luke, on the other hand, was written by the physician, Dr. Luke, traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was not an eyewitness of the events in Jesus' life. As a result, he prepared his orderly, historically accurate account of Jesus through direct interviews with the eyewitnesses of his story or history. Luke's target audience were the Greeks who valued the concept of the ideal man, valuing the mind of philosophy and teaching, as well as the self-disciplined, fit, and agile body. Luke's theme is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of Man, Luke uses the favorite epithet of the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, to portray his identification with humanity. Luke often describes the physical needs of Jesus, being tired, thirsty, or hungry. Luke, as a doctor, likes to emphasize Jesus and his healing miracles and the value Jesus placed on people and his elevation of women. Luke, converted by Paul, the apostle to the Gentile, wrote much about Jesus' concern for the Gentile as well as the Jew. Luke presents Jesus as the ideal son of man. Now these three Gospels, we, as we said in the past, are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, as we said, was comes from the Greek words sin, which means S Y N, which means similar, and optic, which means seeing. So they are Uh, The Synoptic Gospels see things in similar ways and thus have similar formats. These writings follow similar chronological sequence and contain many of the same words and phrases. The Gospel of John, though, is different. John's approach was more evangelistic in reaching the lost. John, the longest living of the disciples, presents him as Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The synoptic Gospels had specific ethnic audiences in mind, whether they be Jew, Roman, or Greek. John's intended audience was all of humanity, the whole world. In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world. While Luke portrays the humanity of Jesus, John portrays his deity. Luke portrays him being fully human. John shows him as fully God. John portrays Jesus as the revealer of God, recording things in sevens. Now, in Hebrew numerology, seven is the number God considers complete and perfect. John depicts seven signs, seven miracles, seven discourses, and seven I Ams to describe Jesus, the Son of God. Also, John presents as a sub-theme light and darkness. Jesus as the Son of God, representing light, truth, transparency, and authenticity, while darkness represents deception, deeds of darkness, and sin. For example, uh, John's description of Judas leaving the last Passover Seder that Jesus is having with his disciples. In John 1330, Judas leaves the Seder, and John includes the phrase, And it was night. Now, any Jew uh, reading that would know, of course, it was night. The Seder is celebrated at night. But John was saying that to tell Judas was going out into the night to do the deeds of the night and darkness to betray Jesus. John portrays Jesus as the Son of God, the true light who conquers the sin, death, and darkness of the world. Now, having explained the Gospels from four unique perspectives, we can view and better understand the person and work of Jesus Christ from these different perspectives. And if you can remember uh, several months ago, I, I took a large a diamond-shaped glass figure. It was a joke that I was claiming that it was my wife's engagement ring. I, I held it up to the light and rotated the precious stone. As I did... Each facet of the diamond reflected or showed a different light, a different glint, a different aspect of the light. So, too, the Gospels show us different aspects of the life of Christ, a different light of revelation for us to understand who Jesus the Messiah was, is, and always will be. That's why there are four Gospels to depict such an extraordinary life. Now, having done a bit of a sidestep to discuss the Gospels, let me resume in discussing the second point about the earthly king, his redemptive mission and purpose. If you can remember back almost a year ago, I shared with you a message entitled, The Scarlet Thread of Redemption. In it, I trace the history of redemption from the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. Through every page of the Bible, there runs a constant thread or line in the redemptive story of God and man. We see uh, when we reach the Gospels that that thread is broad and bright red. The scarlet red thread speaks of the shed blood used to atone for man's sin and the plan God was working towards the ultimate redemption of mankind. All the events recorded in the Gospels... Um, that account for the Lord Jesus were consistent with his redemptive mission and purpose as the messianic king of salvation. From the gospel's presentation, we see the person and work of the Lord Jesus in the events of his life. We see in the introduction of the king, we see his royal genealogy that Matthew and Luke provide genealogies because a king and a perfect man need a genealogy, well, Mark and John don't because a servant of God and uh, God himself don't need a genealogy. We see his prophesied Elijah-like herald, John the baptizer preparing his way. We see uh, John the baptizer saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see Jesus' humble yet majestic birth. We see a bit of his obedient childhood and training in Nazareth as the carpenter's son and see his uh, understanding comprehension of the scriptures as a young boy in the temple with the teachers. Then we see the approval of the king. As I shared uh, that John saw Jesus coming up and declared him as the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see in his baptism an entry into public ministry. Uh, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descending on him as a dove and the voice of the father pronouncing approvingly, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This baptism of Jesus was not a baptism of repentance, but rather a baptism of identification with creation and was part of fulfilling all righteousness. One interesting aspect of this baptism was Jesus fulfilled righteousness by undergoing baptism into the priesthood. There was a transferring of the priesthood from John, the last of the ironic priests, to Jesus, the ultimate great high priest. Then we see the authority of the king as he performs healing and supernatural miracles and his dominion over the devil, sin, and false religious tradition. He selects a diverse band of ordinary men which he would disciple, train, commission, and empower to take his message, his good news, to a lost and dying world. Then we see the controversy over the king as he confronts the Jewish religious leaders, more intent on their own power and place of prominence than in the truth and the ways of God. You know, Jesus' harshest criticisms and condemnations were to the false religious teachers, the blind guides leading people astray. They presented the stiffest and the vilest attacks against this promised Messiah, That they refused to acknowledge. They refused to acknowledge, even after thorough investigation, Jesus performing miracles, that their ancient rabbinic tradition ascribed only to the Messiah. These three miracles were healing a leper, casting out a dumb demon, and healing a man born blind were all miracles only the promised Messiah could perform. Which Jesus did, and they refused to acknowledge and accept him, but rather they rejected him as the promised Messiah. All along the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, he taught and demonstrated the love of God, the truth of God, and the ways of God. To the downtrodden, he lifted them up. To the lofty, he brought them down. He spoke to the needs of each and every heart whether it was consolation and commendation or confrontation and condemnation. In John 7.46 we read, No one ever spoke the way this man does. In Matthew 7.29, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Matthew 22.29 tells us that Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. He spoke with the authority of God because he was God. Now, next week is Palm Sunday. We will resume the study of eight days that Change the world as we enter the eight days of the passion or the suffering of Christ, starting with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Please be sure to be a part of that. Now, I'll leave you with this brief but powerful excerpt from a godly man, Dr. S.M. Locke. He was the long-serving pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego from 1953 to 1993. This message, this excerpt is entitled, That's My King, Do You Know Him? At the end of this, I want you to be able to answer that question without doubt or uncertainty. Do you know him?
1: The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. I, I wonder do you know him? <laughs> my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting, His love never changes, His word is enough, His grace is sufficient, His reign is righteous, and His yoke is easy, and His burden is light. I wish I could describe Him to you. He's indescribable, He's incomprehensible, He's invincible, He's irresistible. Well, you can't get Him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah. That's my king. That's my king. Yeah.